Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to MN Sports Talk, uh, the podcast where we do a lot of things about sports. Today it is May 11th, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host Mike Menzing. Say hello, Mike. Hello, everybody. And we actually have a special guest with us today. Uh, we are joined by my brother Matthew. Um, Matt is an expert in all things Ultimate Fighting, for sure. Um, and then he will be joining us for the rest of the show as well, uh, as we have a great show for you guys. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, as always, guys, if you want to get in touch with us on social media, which we always uh, recommend that you do, uh, you can find us on uh, Instagram at MN underscore sports talk, uh, Facebook on M forward slash N sports talk, and then always email us if you have questions or a topic you want us to cover at MN sports talk one. That's the number, not the uh, the letters at gmail.com. We're still on that climb to 150 followers, folks. We're about 20 people away right now. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you like, subscribe, or follow, and then turn on notifications for when we drop brand new content. As Mike said, we have a fantastic show for you today. We are going to be going over uh, UFC 249, uh, the recap of all the human cockfighting that went on over the weekend, uh, the shakeup in the uh, Monday Night Football crew, uh, and you know, who we might want to see uh, as replacements. Mike's got some news on a new sport coming to uh, college uh, campuses near you. A uh, recap of the Money in the Bank pay-per-view. And then, as always, on Mondays, we will go over the electrifying uh, episodes of The Last Dance 7 and 8 uh, as that series winds down next week, uh, or this week, technically, on Sunday. Um, let's uh, kick things off right away uh, and get into UFC uh, 249. Uh, Mike, real quick, what what were you, some of your takeaways uh, from uh, you know the the matches over the weekend? Yeah, um, as unfortunate as it was uh, being the first sporting event in almost two months, um, I unfortunately missed the card. So that is uh, one of the reasons that I did bring my brother in today um, because he is an avid UFC fan. Um, and the other reason that I brought him in is uh, I would truly consider him almost an expert in the sport. Um, just listening to him talk about uh, Ultimate Fighting Championships with uh, peers. Uh, Matthew just seems to have kind of a, another tier of knowledge um, compared to the rest of the people that I hear from. So, uh, Matthew, welcome. Uh, I think I'm going to defer that question to you. Uh, first and foremost, just what, what would you say was the biggest thing that you took away from the fights last night? Um, I... I was just really impressed with the card that they put together. It was uh, everything a, a big fan would want to see after a long time off. That's for sure. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Um, Dana White worked his butt off to put together a really entertaining card. Um, and I think the fact that he was able to do so with the amount of variables that were changing. Um, you know, we had rumors that this was going to be held in California, uh, you know, what, three, four weeks ago. And then it switched to Jacksonville and no fans. And he had a lot of variables that he had to deal with in putting together this card. And he did definitely deliver with a, an entertaining uh, night of fights as well. And one so, big thing that he had to deal with was he could only use fighters that were already in the States. There were no uh, international fighters, fighters that trained abroad allowed on this card. And considering that, they put together a really, really spectacular card. 
Oh wow! So those were all Amer- those were all American fighters. Over well, American they, training fighters. I was going to say they, they may have been foreign, but they were already in the states and ready to fight in Jacksonville, and that wasn't going to be a problem. Um, but like the lightweight champion Khabib Nurmagomedov, who was supposed to actually fight and defend his lightweight title against Tony Ferguson on this card, um, had already gone back to Dagestan and quarantined himself, and all flights have been grounded in Russia, out of Russia, and he. The, made it abundantly clear from the very beginning that he was not going to be able to fight um, on the April 18th card or on this card uh, on May 9th. Um, He is a devout Muslim, so he celebrates Ramadan. So that's his number one focus. So he will be ready to fight the winner of Saturday night's card, Justin Gaethje, um, sometime around September or October. Awesome. And that's yeah. why Justin Gaethje said uh, he doesn't even want the interim belt, right? He wants to wait for the real thing? Yeah, well, Khabib Nurmagomedov is a 28-0 lightweight champion. He has never lost. He's really only lost one round in his career, and that was even arguable that he didn't even lose that round. Um, so, yeah, and that's the guy everyone wants to fight. If you're a real you know, competitor, you want to obviously take out the guy who everyone is afraid of, you know, nobody can beat. So uh, Justin Gaethje, uh, Tony Ferguson, who had actually not lost since 2012, and it was the main event for the interim lightweight championship. Um, Tony Ferguson, like I said, hasn't lost in eight years. Definitely the favorite to win that fight. Um, I saw a lot of different uh, UFC pundits saying that he was he had as good of like a 90% chance to win that fight. I personally saw it going like a 75% chance to win that fight. I think Tony Ferguson's got the outstanding gas tank, super well-rounded, really good stand-up and submissions, Division One national champion wrestler. But Tony or, uh, Justin Gaethje, rather, is also a Division One All-American wrestler, super hands, really well-rounded fighter as well, and he took it to Tony Ferguson. He fought just about the perfect fight. Uh, kept his distance, stayed away, and took advantage of the holes in Tony's game and stopped him in the fifth round. So that was uh, super impressive to see. Yeah, so I guess, how did it, do you think that there was any kind of leg up, I guess, without, for any specific fighter because there wasn't fans in attendance? Obviously, like if one guy would have been the fan favorite, do you think that that guy kind of took a, a little bit of a hit momentum-wise just based on the fact that he didn't have people behind him or do you, did you see anything like that or anything unique with the fans being missing from a UFC event for the first time? So there's certainly no home field advantage, right? You know, if you see the Vikings play the Packers at Lambeau, but there's no fans at Lambeau at the end of the day, what, what good is Lambeau? You know what I mean? So um, they fought in Jacksonville. It's a pretty neutral ground. Florida is a huge training hub for tons of fighters. Lots of fighters didn't even have to drive far. Uh, so it worked out in that way. Um, you know, with no fans, there's going to be no home field advantage, which in mixed martial arts, I honestly, I never thought played much of a, much of a huge part until I actually went and saw the UFC live in person. And I saw a few fighters from Minnesota and I saw that boost that they got from being, you know, uh, getting that, that boost from the home crowd. And that really made me realize how much of a difference it can make and how impressive it really is when a fighter can go, for example, to Russia and fight a Russian fighter or Brazil and fight a Brazilian fighter and win impressively. It's certainly a lot more difficult than uh, it's given credit for. Right. And I actually have a question off that, Matt. Um, with all of the differences that we saw in UFC 249, um, just to 
few to list off really quick. Uh, the cornermen were wearing masks. Um, no fans that we've talked about. Um, you could kind of hear every blow as a television viewer. Um, do you see the UFC making any changes possibly moving forward to bring a better experience to the living room? Um, as we've seen that a lot of fans that watched UFC 249 from their living room thought that this was almost a better experience. Uh, in some ways, it definitely did make it more personal. Um, it was really interesting to be able to hear the fighters talk to each other kind of throughout the fight or to their cornermen so well or after the fight. Um, the UFC does a pretty good job of trying to give you that stuff as it is, so I don't see them making any specific changes uh, in the future to make it more accessible, although it's certainly enjoyable at this point in time when we can hear everything uh, without the fans. Uh, do you guys have a take? Do you think that they should do something to change that? I guess the only thing that thinks comes to my mind, and Nick, uh, I'm sure you kind of have the same thought process, is maybe the NFL players that are mic'd up. Um, they could maybe do something with miking up like the top of the cage so it doesn't interfere with the, the fight at all. Something like that. Yeah, I, yeah, I was just literally as you guys were going through that, I was thinking about how in the corners up by the pads you could have like a camera with a microphone and then for the guys out there that want to watch the in-ring experience, you know, not through the cage, like literally be in the cage, see it shake, hear it from a different, you know, drowned out the stuff that's behind it. I think that would be a really cool thing for the UFC to do. I don't know how plausible it is, of course. Um, but Something else, I, actually. Just, just to give you a little input on that, I think that um, they do a really big, good job of that as it is. Just from being there in person and actually seeing the fight live, it's freaking loud in there you know what i mean it's really really loud they do a pretty good job of drowning that out and letting you hear the actual fights like for example i don't know if you guys saw the uh, most recent welterweight title fight between kamaru usman and colby covington but colby covington actually he had his jaw broken in between or uh, in the third round and you could hear him corner in between the third and the fourth round and it's funny because he actually went on to complain about that and say that somehow when he said that, it relayed and got over to Kamaru Usman's corner, and Kamaru Usman knew that he broke in his jaw, and Colby Covington was like, well, why? Why does he know that? You know what I mean? It's supposed to be between me and my corner, which is an interesting point. Right. Uh, um, one other, like, branch of technology that they could explore, um, obviously, I don't know as much about the sport as you do, Matt. Um, what about GoPros on, like, the referee's chest? They actually did that in uh, – in Japan organizations a couple times and I personally am a fan I think it's really cool although it's it's kind of a crapshoot on whether or not you're going to get a very good uh you know a good picture you know right. with a with a camera on a referee's chest but so you could use it maybe a, after the fact for highlights or something like that if you have the footage yeah that was more so how it was used in Japan and there were some really fun knockout highlights with that referee cam you know Awesome. So before we get into the card itself, uh, Nick, do you have any takeaways from the card last night? Yeah. Um, you know, I have two questions. Uh, well, one that I'll say for when we get into the card. Um, but first of all, I didn't know that you could punch somebody hard enough to break the bone around their eyeball. That sounds like the most painful injury to have occurred to any human being on the planet earth and it makes me cringe it's funny that you say that because it's actually fairly common <laughs> oh and I, like a broken orbital bone i just imagine somebody's eyeball hanging halfway out of their head because their skull can no longer contain well you got to think of it this way your 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 coconut is about i think they say 
I quote me out of turn here. I'm an idiot, but I think they say it's about a half inch or a quarter inch thick or something like that. So it's pretty thick. So usually it's just more of like a like a fracture crack type situation. Obviously isn't any better and it's still extremely painful, but you can usually see in a fighter's face pretty quickly when they break their orbital bone because their whole face tends to swell up like a, you know, like a ripe yeah. fruit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then the other one is now, uh, this actually was something that you broached uh, offline, Matt, when we were speaking uh, the, uh, like, I think it was yesterday about one of the fighters complaining about uh, the condition of the referees going into these matches, saying that he smelled like cigarette smoke and booze. Um, is there any truth behind some of these UFC uh, referees showing up smelling like a hangover or what's going on there? Did you hear anything more about it? I did hear about it. I heard it from Dominic Cruz, who is the former uh, UFC uh, and WEC bantamweight champion. Um, and he, is a super reliable guy. You know, he's an analyst, super smart, uh, talented, one of the greatest of all time, certainly a future hall of famer. However, he was very emotional. I thought the stoppage was early. So if he, you know, it's certainly possible. He got a waft of cigarettes and beer from the referee. I'm not going to sit here and say that that's impossible. However, he was very emotional at the time. And I don't know if he would have said anything if he had won the fight, for example. So sure. That's fair. Um, it may not have been an objective thing to say is what you're saying. Perhaps not. Although maybe he's 100% right. And that, and if he is, that's certainly not okay. The refereeing a mixed martial arts bout is as serious as refereeing any other sport, if not more so because you're protecting another human being's life. No one's going right. to get killed. That's no what one's I was going to say. A basketball game because of a bad call. I love basketball and care about the causes you guys, but, no one's going to die because LeBron got slashed. You know what I mean? Someone could die if a referee doesn't step in on time for a choke or, or a KO. Well, and that's what I was going to say, too, is um, not only not stepping in, but stepping in late um, and having yeah. the influence of alcohol affects your um, uh, help me time. with work. reaction time. Thank you. Words are hard. Um, and it affects your reaction time. So that could actually literally be a dangerous thing if these referees are under the influence of any sort of drug. It does add to the irony, though, because Dominic Cruz was complaining about an early stoppage. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're 100% correct. That, that's a good point. All right, so let's dive into the card here. Um, we'll just go through each of the main card fights quickly. Um, Matt, just a little tidbit, what you st uh, kind of took from the fight um, and what you see possibly moving forward for these fighters. Um, again, I am not as large of a fan as the Ultimate Fighting Championships as my brother Matt here. So Matt, if I butcher any names, please help me out, okay? Yeah, by all means. Alrighty, so the first fight on the main card, I believe, was Greg Hardy versus Jorgen de Castro. Okay, yep, that's correct pronunciation. Uh, Greg Hardy, as you guys I'm sure both know, is a former All-Pro in the NFL. Uh, he's been fighting MMA for a couple of years now. Uh, I gotta he say, won by decision, right? Yep, uh, he looked pretty... You know, in the grand scheme of the world-class mixed martial artist, he looked solid. I'd give him about a solid B-plus, or excuse me, about a C-plus grade right now um, in his overall skill set. I think he definitely has a ton of potential. He's obviously an athletic freak, hits super hard. But the thing about uh, mixed martial arts is it's, it just takes a long time to acquire the kinds of skills that you would need to be at the highest levels of the sport. But the guys that he's fighting against right now, he's gonna, you know, he, he's gonna be able to use his athleticism to continue to outclass these guys. And 
until they give him another really top competitor like they did in his last fight against Alexander Volkov. I think he's just going to keep showing that he's uh, too too good for these guys. So you think Greg Hardy um, has the potential to maybe crack like top 20, but not anything past that because of... I, I, I think that right now he's already in the top 20. I think he's one of those guys who probably could in two or three years potentially get a title shot, but he's got to do the right things and uh, continue to improve. But he seems like he really... Uh, he seems like he really cares about his training and takes it very seriously and wants to be the best he can be. So That's awesome. Uh, and actually, you answered my question perfectly because my question was, can Greg Hardy do this effectively? So I feel like you answered that question. Uh, yeah, Nick, I, any, uh, any takeaways from that fight? Yeah, I just have a follow-up on the Hardy thing then. like, I was going to ask you uh, what his ceiling is. And obviously, you said in two, three years, you think he could uh, be at a title shot. I've seen a lot of other... Uh, athletes transition from outside sports into UFC and their ceiling is kind of like middle of the road, if not floundering in their own uh, failure. Once they step into the ring, what has made the transition different for Hardy? What do you think makes him successful? Well, I think he got a couple things really. I think a lot of the guys that you have on your mind were good in their sports, but they were never great. And Greg Hardy is a former all pro, you know what I mean? He, he really, he ran into legal issues and that's the only reason that he still isn't on a team in the NFL right now. He was one of the best players on every team that he was on, uh, you know, for the, for the D line. And now that he's in a mixed martial artist, I think he just still has that same elite mindset that he, whatever sport he gets into, he's going to be one of the best people in it and he is certainly making the strides in the right direction uh on saturday night he did a lot of things that you'd want to see uh, a really sound prospect do he, he had really good defense he mixed it up really well he, he does the right things that you want to see someone do awesome all right Alrighty. so uh moving on to our next fight um jeremy stevens versus calvin qatar is it qatar matt uh, it's Cater, but I could see where you think it's that. So Jeremy Steven, uh, Jeremy Stevens versus Calvin Cater. Uh, Cater won by uh, knockout, technical knockout. Um, tell us a little bit about that fight, Matt. So Calvin Cater is a super slick stand-up fighter. He trains with professional boxers. He's got really sound stand-up skills. He's very well-rounded, but that is his main skill set. Jeremy Stevens is a well-known knockout artist in his own right. He's been in the UFC since he was 21 years old. And now I think he's 35 and he never got cut once. He's been one of those guys. He's been, I think he's got about 34 fights, 33 or 34 fights in the UFC, which is unbelievable. So he's a complete warrior. Definitely a good test for an up and comer like Calvin Cater. And Calvin just came through with flying colors, man. He, he was slicker most of the fight and he just capitalized and finished with a huge right elbow, uh, caught Jeremy winding up on a big right hand, and Calvin just got there quicker with the elbow and hit him right in the chin and dropped him and finished him. Really quick, how old is Calvin Cater? I think he's about late 20s, uh, uh, if not early 30s. Do you think that that factored into it a little bit, just him being a little bit younger? Uh, I honestly think that Calvin is just... Uh, I just think he's – I love Jeremy Stevens, but I think Calvin's got a higher ceiling in mixed okay. martial arts. So he's just a little bit more talented. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, so I'm definitely going to need help on this next name here. Um, I know the first Garzino one. Rosenstrike. All right, versus Francis Ngannou. He knew which one I needed help with. Uh, and Ngannou won this fight in 20 seconds, Matt. What the heck happened wow. here? 
So Jarzinho Rosenstrike had a perfect 2019. He was the UFC Rookie of the Year in 2019. Uh, his last win was a fifth-round knockout over K1 Grand Prix champion Alistair Overeem, former heavyweight title contender. Uh, so he had an outstanding 2019. So he really had every right to call out Francis Ngannou when he did it. And uh, Jarzinho Rosenstrike is an outstanding fighter. He has a 27-3 and record in professional kickboxing. 10 and 0 record in professional mixed martial arts. He wanted to come out party. Everyone's scared of Francis Ngannou. Jarzinho wanted to be the guy who said, you know what? I'm not scared of that guy. I'll, I'll, you know, bully the bully. And he went in there and he unfortunately got shown that Francis Ngannou is the most dangerous knockout threat in the world today. So I guess my question is, does this happen? Like if these two meet in the octagon, octagon today, does this happen again? Do you see the same result? I, See, so here's my my take on this. Jozinho Rosenstrike was fighting a spectacular fight in the as funny as it sounds in those first 15 seconds until uh, Francis Ngannou bull rushed him and caught him with a left okay. hand on a chin. So here's my take on that. Jozinho Rosenstrike, I personally would argue, is a higher level technical striker, but Francis Ngannou will KO any person on the planet earth if he connects with you in the right way so to answer that question it's a dangerous yeah it looks like we have some technical difficulties and matt cut out unfortunately um we will be trying to get him back um and we will move on with the show here uh the next fight nick is going to be henry kajudo versus dominic cruz uh, could you about won that. this fight by a knockout? It does seem that we have Matt. It does seem like we have Matt back. Uh, Matt, do you want to recap uh, the last uh, phrase that you were trying to wrap up the Ngannou Rosenstrike? Where, where did uh, where did you guys leave off? Oh, uh, we kind of lost you uh, right on the last phrase there. Just wrapping up the Ngannou Rosenstrike fight. Uh, I was just going to say, I think it's one of those fights where Francis Ngannou could make mistakes all night and still win because okay. he's just such a powerful guy. Sure. So our next fight, Matt. I mean, everybody's, everybody's got a game plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? You know, that's what Mike Tyson used to say, kind of the yep. same thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it doesn't really matter how how tough you are or how much you know about fighting. If your brain's scrambled, it doesn't matter. Right. You can't train for anything like that either. You can't just get concussions repeatedly uh, <laughs> and feel like you're stronger for it. Uh, so the next fight, Matt, is Henry Cajudo uh, versus Donald Cajudo. Cahudo, sorry, I should have known that Jay is silent. Uh, Henry Cahudo. 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 Oh, Cahudo. So Henry Cahudo versus Dominic Cruz, and Cahudo won this fight. I was a little surprised at that. Um, Do you want to expand on that for our? Yeah. So uh, Henry Cahudo is a 2008 Beijing gold medalist in in freestyle wrestling. He did it at 21 years old. He's a bit of a prodigy. Uh, He came into mixed martial arts uh, in 2013. And he did six fights in one year and was in the UFC by 2014. Uh, got his first title shot, I want to say, around 2015 or 2016. And that was against Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, who was uh, arguably the best fighter in the world at that time. And he got stopped early in the first round, uh, but he came back and won his next couple fights and beat Demetrius Johnson in a rematch. And ever since then, Henry, Henry Cejudo has been going on a tear. He moved up to 130. He actually the 135-pound champion down at his weight class of 125 pounds who talked all kinds of smack about how he was going to kill the 125-pound division. 
and he ended up uh, Henry ended up knocking him out in the first round. So since he knocked out the 135 pound champion, he thought I might as well just move up to 135 pounds. Wins another title at 135 pounds, and that's how he ended up having the title to fight Dominic Cruz for this fight. Uh, Dominic Cruz, on the other hand, like I said earlier, is a former champion uh, in the WEC and the UFC. One of those guys who's pretty much fought for a title in every fight he's ever had in the UFC, uh, short of one or two. And so he has actually been out for the last four years. He broke his uh, his forearm, and he actually tore uh, a ligament in his shoulder as well. So he's been out for the last three and a half years. Yeah, and it's unfortunately, that's actually not the first time he's had a layoff close to that long. He uh, tore his ACL back in, I want to say, 2012 or 2013. And then when he was recovering from that, he re-tore his ACL. And then he came back from that, fought one fight, and then he tore his other ACL, if you could believe it. Yeah, so this guy's had a ton of bad luck. So thank goodness he came in healthy for this fight against Henry Cejudo. He looked like he had a little bit of ring rust in there uh, against Henry. Henry was fighting a brilliant fight against him. And just as soon as Dominic was starting to turn it on and get his timing, Henry caught him with a big knee and hit him with a few shots, and the ref pulled him off. Uh, so I personally thought it could have been a little bit early, but it was still outstanding performance by Henry Cejudo. Good for that guy. Definitely. And uh, last bit on that is Henry Cejudo is 33 years old, and he only had one loss in mixed martial arts uh, in a title fight against Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. So he decided to actually hang up the gloves and move on to bigger and better things as he was not going to get the paychecks that he wanted to. Little guys in mixed martial arts tend to not get the biggest paychecks. So he just decided to uh, hang them up. You can see that. So, so wait, that Cejudo, so you said Cejudo retired after this fight? Yeah, he did. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a pretty good way to end your career then. Uh, I yeah, think Tom Cruz is a pretty big name in uh, UFC, so uh, that's a pretty good victory to walk away on, don't you think? Definitely man? massive, uh, massive victory to end things on. And Henry Cejudo is already a legend in wrestling and was probably already going to go out uh, as a UFC Hall of Famer, even if he didn't win this fight. So the fact that he won this fight and then hung up his gloves, I think is uh, unfortunate for fans of his who like to watch him, but for him and his family, that to me is just a textbook perfect ending. That's awesome. Perfect. And then uh, the last fight of the night, we have already talked about it a small amount, but it was the title fight, so we'll get into it a little bit more. Uh, I believe it was the fight of the night and the performance of the night as well. Uh, was Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. So like I said before, Khabib Nurmagomedov was supposed to defend his fight against Tony Ferguson. That is the fight everyone has been wanting to see for years now. Uh, that fight had actually already been scheduled five times. And all, as if it was a curse, something happens every single time that that fight is scheduled. One time, Khabib Nurmagomedov came in overweight and actually had to go to the hospital because he couldn't cut any more weight. Another time, during fight week, Tony Ferguson actually tripped on a cord and tore his LCL. That's during right. fight week. I remember hearing about that. <laughs> um, and it was at a weigh-in, too, wasn't it? Uh, it was at a pressure. <laughs> At a press release, yeah. So it was yeah, at a UFC so, event that he did it. Yeah. Stupid media. Unbelievable. Get your cords right, folks. But um, anyway, so this fight, this is actually the fifth time that it had been scheduled. And go figure the coronavirus hits. So it, it just, it, it almost seems like God doesn't want these two to fight each other. Because finally, Tony Ferguson or Khabib Nurmagomedov has always 
fight a replacement, and they've always come through and won and kept that fight a part of people's fantasies that that could still be the fight that would happen. And finally, someone came in and beat one of them. And uh, the guy was Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje has been on an absolute terror as of late. He's won his last three fights by first-round knockout. And he came in with the perfect game plan. Everyone thought he was going to come in and fight desperately and try to just knock out Tony Ferguson with reckless abandon. But he fought a really technical, sound fight and just put a beat down on Tony Ferguson. And he uh, came away the winner with a fifth-round TKO. Tony Ferguson, like you said, broke his orbital bone. He was brutalized in that fight. So the next fight that everybody's eyeing then is going to be the Gaethje versus Nurmagomedov fight. Um, if Habib wins that fight, do we circle Tony Ferguson's name again? I think Tony Ferguson has to... When, when any guy takes a beating like that, it's not really like getting beat 49 to nothing in a football game. You know, that hurts morally. But Tony Ferguson is physically hurt right now, so we got to see how he can bounce back from a loss like that. He's 36 years old. He's got a kid. You know, this was supposed to be his title fight uh, against Khabib. So uh, I think he'll continue to fight, but we still got to see how he'll come back from that loss. Uh, that was a really brutal loss, and I think people are now going to see the holes in his game. So Fair enough. Maybe I, win a couple fights before uh, getting Khabib again. Yeah, and, and I, just, I guess I just have a follow-up question. So you say that there's always replacements booked. Um, I don't know if it's premature or, you know, if I'm missing the boat on something here. Why is Connor not plugged into one of these fights to see if he can still contend at the top and maybe get back to another fight with Khabib? Because uh, allegedly that's what Connor wants. So well, why was he not approached as somebody to take a match like this? Because there's different rules for Connor McGregor. <laughs> He's uh, he, he Connor McGregor is uh, the most, you know, Michael Jordan of MMA. You know, so he can pretty much fight for a title when he sees fit. And he certainly wouldn't want to fight uh, with without a full training camp, analyzing his opponent, you know, breaking him down, and just being as good of a fighter as he could possibly be before that fight. He actually said that before the first Khabib Nurmagomedov fight, that he wasn't really tra- taking his training as seriously as he could. And he was, it was when he was actually going around trying to advertise his whiskey, the new proper 12 whiskey. He said he had been drinking way too much whiskey and it affected his performance. And I, I, I see Connor as if he's going to fight Khabib Nurmagomedov for the title again. Uh, I think now is probably the perfect time if uh, Khabib can come away with that win over Justin Gaethje. Uh, so I think Connor should probably. The rumor is Connor's going to fight somebody else coming up, so maybe he can just fight somebody else, maybe at a different weight class or something like that, have an entertaining fight, and then uh, hopefully rematch against Khabib Nurmagomedov. Unless, of course, Justin Gaethje can play spoiler again, which he was able to do against Tony. So, um, Matt, really quick, just a really quick side question. Um, knowing who Connor McGregor is, do you think he would ever take a fight in the UFC with no fans in attendance? Ah, uh, that's a really interesting question. Because I don't think uh, he would. I don't you know, think he would either. I was going to say, I think Conor McGregor is at the point, he's at a point in his career where he doesn't really need to fight unless it's the perfect circumstances. Right. So I don't see why he wouldn't just wait for this to clear up because I think it will, you know, be a matter of a few more months until they can, well, uh, uh, within a year that they can put fans in stands again. You know what I mean? Even limited fans. Well, awesome, Matthew. Thank you very much uh, for your analysis of the Ultimate Fighting Championships uh, UFC 249 uh, last night and joining us. Um, You will 
uh, join us for the rest of the show. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for having or thanks for joining us uh, today. So from a bunch of human beings uh, who attempt to kill each other for a living uh, to two guys who had their living killed off. Um, Nick, uh, the Monday Night Football crew for ESPN is having a shakeup. Yeah, uh, so over the weekend, it was actually, I think it was Friday after we had recorded our, our special, I was thumbing through social media and I saw something about NFL's broadcast crew, you know, getting a change. And I was immediately so excited because I thought, you know, as human beings, we were going to be able to stop having to listen uh, to Chris Collinsworth on Sunday Night Football. Unfortunately, that is not the case. It's a shakeup to the Monday Night Football crew over on NBC uh, as they got rid of Joe Tessitore and Booger uh, McFarland for uh, the upcoming NFL season now. Uh, obviously, the way that the broadcasts have gone for the NFL over the past year or so since that team was installed has been admittedly subpar. Some people like to watch their games with the commentary turned off and music playing because of how bad the broadcasting has been. Um, so they're going to make a change, uh, and they claim that they're going to be hiring from in, in-house. They're not going to go outside and pay anybody a large amount of money due to the COVID stuff right now um, and you know having to get their funding approved through Disney. Um, so what do you think, Mike, is uh, the right move right now, I guess, or and Matt, too, uh, to get the appropriate person in the booth to draw attention back to uh, the commentating style that obviously they want to put on as like this mini Super Bowl at the end of every week. Right. Um, first of all, I, I didn't mind Joe Testor myself. Um, I actually think he has a pretty good voice for broadcasting. I think he was pretty knowledgeable. I think personally he did a pretty good job. Um, I think if he wasn't tied to Booger McFarland, he may still have a job <laughs> on Monday Night Football. And I think that this is mostly to do with Booger McFarland. Um, Booger, man, he's a great dude. Um, and I feel like the reason that he's out of a job right now is because he gives too basic of um, outtakes. You know what I mean? Like, you see a guy named Philip Rivers here, and Philip Rivers plays quarterback, which means he throws the ball. That's he's, Booger McFarland's take. He's Madden, bro. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, and I think that that's where it comes from. Um, seeing Tony Romo I, on, I believe, CBS, um, basically predicting what teams are going to do. Um, and then you change the channel and Booger McFarland is telling you what a quarterback is. And I think that that's where ESPN is lacking. Um, and I think that that's what they're going to try to do is find someone who has that knowledge of the game uh, to bring that knowledge of the game to the viewers. I think that's what the viewers are lacking right now. So I don't know exactly who they have um, pegged. I don't know who's in ESPN's um, umbrella that has that type of knowledge. Um, but that's my prediction is someone who has that type of knowledge for football, um, similar to Tony Romo coming forward. Okay. Matt, what about you? Uh, I, I got to say, I agree with Mike on this one. I think that somebody, uh, I, there have been rumors going around about Peyton Manning possibly getting some sort of an analyst job. I think someone like that would be perfect. Uh, I do agree with Mike, though, that Joe Tessitore, unfortunately, got thrown underneath the bus here. I think Joe Tessitore has done a really spectacular job in all kinds of sports. He's done basketball, boxing, uh, you know, lots of different things. And I'm sure he'll find another job. But uh, I'm not terribly familiar with Booger McFarland, which is sort of funny because I watch every football game, which probably just goes to show that I've ignored every word that he's said. So, um, yeah, but if a guy like Peyton Manning was in there, I definitely think he would uh, he would he would engage fans for sure. You know, you see how much Tony Romo has given to the sport uh, since becoming an analyst. I would I would argue that 
he's given more to the sport in his one year as an analyst as he than he ever did as a player. You know what I mean? And he was a hell of a player. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you have a great point. Um, he's revolutionized football broadcasting. I would say. For um, sure. He's changed the game. Well, he's he has managed to bridge the gap between player like player knowledge, which you usually get most out of retired players who do not comment like not commentary, but sports shows itself and the everyday fan. So when you stick a guy like that in the booth and you get you almost get that beside that sidelines behind the scenes kind of like XFL kind of feel with Tony being in the booth. And I you're right, he's a great he's a great face for football broadcasting. Um I guess what I want to do now is we're all going to get the opportunity and we can do this uh, as kind of a, a fan vote thing. We can put it up on our social media. Let's each pick somebody that we want to see in the booth for Monday night football and let the fans vote on who they would want to see out of our three the most. So Mike, why don't you start? Man, uh, honestly, I think you're going to have to give me some time to think about it because I really don't know any specific names. I'm going to cop out on this one, yeah, unfortunately. Um, I just don't know any specific names. I know that for a fact ESPN is going to be keeping it in-house and Tester and McFarland are actually going to be staying with ESPN. Uh, They are not out of jobs proper. They're just out of that position. Um, So we may even see somebody who was broadcasting uh, like some other day or time, you know, time – slot uh just switch to monday night so i'm not sure uh who exactly that may be um so unfortunately i kind of have to give a cop out uh matt do you have a specific name in mind like i said before i would love to see peyton manning do it i'm a huge peyton manning fan i have been for years just to get to hear his take on watching guys play as they play you know how we get to see tony romo and he'll talk about excuse me how how he'll see what guys are looking for oh he's going to throw to the fade here on the right side oh he's going to switch the run to the left here it's just really interesting to hear things like that from a guy like tony romo and he's been right about it like 95 percent of the time and i could only imagine what peyton manning would have to say you know what i mean so i think that would be my pick yeah as far as a color commentator you know anybody my pick quite personally um i know they lobbied for it when the position was open last year uh was pat mcafee i don't know if you guys are familiar with the stuff that he did on with college football and some of the games that he commentated just to bring a more a more barstool-esque style of commentating to the game like I know that that's why he left schools because he didn't want to be saddled with that kind of image because obviously the NFL commissioner doesn't completely agree with some of the things that that brand has in mind but his ability to step into a booth and really get keep the crowd interested uh, with what he has to say I think would be would be my top pick, you know, almost a less Peyton formal Manning. approach. Yeah, you're right. Cause he's not Peyton Manning, but you got to remember he was the third string quarterback. He was in that room with Peyton Manning every day. You know, he was the, you know, the NFL's he was the NFL's top 100 punter or so, you know, like he's got accolades or punter of the decade or whatever. So like, just to and he's an all around entertaining guy. He really yeah. is. And to see him in the booth, I think would breathe life into an otherwise lifeless broadcast. I Absolutely. All righty. Well, I think that wraps up our NFL news. Uh, So moving from uh, the NFL to another version of football uh, that Booger may be more suited to cover, uh, the NAIA. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, uh, the NAIA stands for the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics. Uh, This is a competitor of the NCAA. Uh, They are not affiliated, um, but the NFL and NAIA uh, are partnering to bring women's flag football to collegiate campuses as a sanctioned sport. 
Um, so this is new news. Uh, it's brand new, broke, I believe, over the weekend, or if not, late last week. Uh, and this should be in colleges by spring of 2021. So we're looking at about a year timetable. Uh, so not that much time to organize and um, recruit players as well. Um, and with the recruiting players, actually, I did read the article. An article mentions a showcase uh, in fall of 2020, a uh, player showcase of some sort. So this, to me, is almost a combine-esque uh, showcase that may be happening here in the fall if, uh, if everything clears up. Um, Nick, is that something that you might tune in for if they televised it? Would you have any interest in watching this? Um, obviously, it's females, which uh, usually in sports, um, specifically NBA, um, WNBA, uh, soccer, you know, women usually have less viewers. Um, could you see this as something that you might be interested in as a fan? As a fan, no. As somebody who sits on a sports talk podcast and would like to be able to shed light on growing sports like this yes as a casual fan probably not uh i think that this is a, a, it's a great move however the unfortunate truth is i don't think that this is ever going to be an earner in collegiate sports no matter what way you shake it down i think some of it has to do with the approach and i think the other uh the other aspect of it is the writing is on the wall with other sporting platforms already. If you take a look at the WNBA, it's almost primarily funded by the NBA because they spend more money than they make year in and year out. And I think no matter how you shake this down because of how big college football is and the saturation in that market already, say if the XFL comes back or the or Aussie rules football continues to grow, um, I don't think it's ever going to be able to stand on its own two feet. Um, the, and the reason I say that is because of quality of product. Now, I think the appropriate move for uh, a league like this would probably have been to start it at a high school level. Get involved with high schools in a specific state um, to put stuff together like this to develop the level of talent that you would want to see in a promising product in college. And I just, without them approaching it that direction, I think it's a great idea. I will support it. I will be behind it. I am all about women. Uh, have an equal out the same opportunities that men do all over America. I just don't think as a, from a financial standpoint, it'll ever stand on its own. I, I do agree with you. I don't think it's going to be a moneymaker for colleges uh, by any means. However, it does help with title nine. Um, you know, if you have 17 men's sports, you have to have 17 women's sports. So it is another sport that they can add to the women's list. Um, mm -hmm. Plus we talked a little bit off air just over the weekend about the interest in the sport of football itself, just growing. Um, as you see, the participation levels in tackle football actually decrease over the past decade or so. Um, a 2018 New York Times article uh, reported that NFL, the NFL affiliates uh, flag football um, league, the NFL runs its own football league, um, and that league actually had an increase of over 50% uh, participation in the last five years. So while we're seeing tackle football on the decline, we're actually seeing flag football on the increase. Um, with both genders. So my question to you is in 20, 30 years with the development of CTE and all of these things, is this possibly the future of the sport at the collegiate level? At the collegiate level, I, I would say probably. Uh, I think we're going to get to a point, especially with, you see it with guys like Tom Brady now wanting to get as much uh, mileage out of the tread on their tires as they possibly can finding a way to, especially for positions like, say, running back, to not take, you know, 
con a constant beating getting, you know, thrown around four or 500 times a season uh, from high school to college and then getting in the pros and winding up with some of these contract issues and not being able to shake out, you know, who's got what left in the tank. Yeah, I do see it as a viable option. And I think it's going to be good for the overall brand of the sport. If the NFL is going to be the one to pilot it, they've been very cautious uh, lately in portraying a very family friendly um, market space, you know, Roger Goodell, sitting in his basement and you know things like that so this is good uh and i think it's it's a positive uh, alternative i don't think it'll ever get to that point i think we'll find a way to stay with contact football just because of the love of it but yeah i think it's there if we need it so matt really quick um what are your thoughts on the national association of intercollegiate athletics um partnering with the nfl to bring women's flag football to i think it's I think it's fantastic. Personally, I think it's, uh, like you said, it's a really good way to get another women's sport out there. I think there's going to be a lot of girls uh, that are going to be willing to do it and will probably do really well at it. Uh, just to comment on the other thing about collegiate football becoming flag altogether, I see that as an option. I still think that you're going to, there's just no way the Crimson Tide is ever going to switch to flag football. I just don't I, I could be wrong. I could be ignorant here, but I just don't see that happening. Uh, I could see it becoming a prominent option for all students, all student athletes up until a certain age, maybe like eighth grade, 10th grade, 12th grade, something like that. Maybe just let tackle football be something for seniors in high school, for example. Um, just to, like you said, avoid those constant knocks that kids are getting. You know, you, you, you got to imagine there's, Millions of players who were outstanding players in ninth and tenth grade, but something happened to them. You know, they got their head knocked, and they were never the same after that. And who knows? They could have gone on to be the next Barry Sanders. So, uh, it's definitely worth looking into. Uh, Peyton Manning, for example, actually didn't play anything but flag football until his high school uh, career, until he was in ninth grade, and he obviously went on to have a very successful career. So, it, it definitely can work. Alrighty, so we do unfortunately have to take a small ad break here to pay our bills, but we will be back soon. And we're going to jump into the Money in the Bank pay-per-view when we return. So please stay with us. And welcome back, folks. Uh, last two segments that we are going to have for you guys today are going to be reviewing the Money in the Bank pay-per-view since we did have a guest on last week to help us break that down. Uh, and then we're going to get into uh, the last dance. Um, Mike or Matt, did either one of you get the opportunity to either read up on this or see it over the weekend at all? Um, unfortunately not. Sorry. Yeah, and unfortunately I missed the pay-per-view itself. Um, I did do a small amount of reading on the uh, results of the Money in the Bank pay-per-view afterward. Um, however, I wasn't able to watch it live. So I am unfortunately going to have to defer to you, Nick, uh, with all things Money in the Bank as well. Yeah, uh, not a problem. It happened over the weekend, and the unfortunate part is with everything else that's going on in the world right now, plus the last dance, I think the WWE got screwed here. I don't think next to anybody watched this damn thing. Um, I simulcasted alongside the last dance in the WWE I had on silent because they don't have any fans right now. Uh, so there's that. Um, however, uh, um, it was it was a good show. Uh, they the WWE did some fan service as far as uh, instead of throwing what they call like a bait and switch or a curve or uh, whatever they call it in the business, they catered to fan favorites. Uh, Asuka and Otis won 
the men's and women's uh, ladder matches, which were the main events, uh, which was a really cool setup because they actually had the ring on the rooftop uh, of the performance center um, in open air with no fans, which was kind of cool. Um, so that was a little bit different. And then the rest of the matches, I don't think any of them were designed to blow the doors off here, um, but they were good matches. Uh, Bray Wyatt, uh, Funhouse Bray Wyatt, did lose to Braun Strowman, just like your buddy Zach predicted uh, from uh, 13 card subject to change, so credit to him there. Uh, and then we saw um, Drew McIntyre defend uh, his title against uh, the Monday Night Messiah, Seth Rollins, who's got some new theme music and stuff now, kind of cementing himself in for the long haul as kind of this heel that uh, thinks he deserves to be, you know, the end-all, be-all for, for the Monday Night brand. Uh, so that was cool to see all the good guys walk away. They painted everybody really strong. Uh, there's a few weird spots uh, in the show, like some guy just leaving in the middle of a match to be replaced by another wrestler. Uh, Bobby Lashley just told MVP to go to the locker room halfway through a match and decided to pin R-Truth, which was weird. Um, and we had the tag team titles change hands. Back to the New Day, once again, uh, another very uh, young, uh, fan-friendly um, group. And I think they're doing it uh, to make sure that they're keeping their very loyal fans very happy because they know that they're going through some turbulence right now. I just don't know how much longer the WWE can continue to sustain this product without fans because you can tell if you watched any of the show that they're kind of running on E. Um, there's not a whole lot more creative things that they can afford to do at this point uh, with COVID and everything. So best of luck to them as they kind of kind of move through. Awesome. Yeah, um, I unfortunately missed it. Um, I did hear it was a pretty dang good show, pretty entertaining. Um, and then Otis, our Minnesota or Wisconsin, you know, North Shore boy, uh, walked away with the money in the bank. Um, for those who don't know, he is from uh, Superior, Wisconsin. Um, so having a hometown boy walk away with the money in the bank is pretty cool as well. So um, from there, we will move into uh, the last dance. Like Nick said, he had uh, Money in the Bank muted, so we could hear uh, the last dance going on last night. Um, that has pretty much the entire sports world on the edge of their seats on Sunday evening. So um, let's just jump right into that. So it started off uh, episode seven. Um, one of the first things that they talked about, and I actually just learned about this myself uh, not too long ago, was the death of James Jordan. Um, obviously, uh, very sad news. Um, Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan, uh, was murdered on the side of the road um he just stopped and took a nap and it was kind of just a random uh random robbery uh obviously the uh, perpetrators didn't weren't aware uh, that it was michael jordan's father um but uh yeah the, the sad news basically affected michael um and his basketball career in the nba because of that uh, in big, big ways moving forward. So I personally think that that was one of the main reasons why he retired and went to baseball. Um, they talked about it a little bit last night that there were speculations around his retirement. Nick, what are you thinking um, about that first retirement? Well, I, there was even a guy in the episode last night that said that Mike had told him a year earlier that he was walking away to play baseball, that if right. he didn't think he was going to be able to surpass Magic and Bird and get to a three, you know, a three, that he'd have walked away a year earlier. Um, so I think the thought was there. I actually think what pushed him towards baseball uh, being probably knowing that he was going to be in a minor league, like he's always going to be Michael Jordan, but to kind of take some of the spotlight off of himself, 
because he was being accused in the media of being tied to his father's death. Like, could you imagine walking around in a world where when Tiger Woods' dad passed away, if somebody would have been like, hey, yeah, uh, well, because Mike or because Tiger was sleeping with all these women, he had his father killed. Because that's essentially what the media was doing. And it just like to get away from the basketball universe, everybody that was spinning those tales, I think probably played more into it than anybody wanted to admit. Right. I, I do agree with you. Um, he kind of got away from that entire world, um, accusing him of gambling, but like his gambling wasn't anything illegal. He wasn't doing anything wrong. Wasn't gambling against him, his own team. Wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, and then they started tying his gambling to his father's random death too. So um, I think that you have a very good point. Um, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with him just wanting to get away and following along with what his father's wishes for him were. Um, and I think, you know, a big part of it is that his last conversation that he had with his dad was whether or not to play baseball. Um, and then obviously his father is murdered and he leaves to play baseball. I think it was the right decision for him at that time in his career. Um, he even said, uh, you know, at the time of my retirement in 1993, I, I wasn't second guessing my decision at all. I was totally bought in. I was totally bought in on baseball. And actually we see that with his trainer as well. Um, as his trainer warns him, like, dude, this is going to mess you up as a basketball player. And he says, cool, I'm all in on baseball. Yeah. Um, so he does go and play baseball for the Birmingham Barons, which is a double A affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. And I personally didn't think his statistics were actually all that bad. Obviously, you know, you take it with the fact that he's a 31 year old prospect and that's kind of where it starts to get bad. But when you think of the fact that he hasn't played baseball in basically 12, 13 years, to come into an environment uh, like the double A system, a double A system is not bad. Um, obviously, it's not the show, but these players are are players that are going to be in the show in two or three years. Like these are talented ball players. Um, for, so for Michael Jordan to not play baseball basically since high school baseball and then have a 12 year hiatus and then start his career in double A with a 13 game hitting streak, I, I, was shocked at that that just showed how great of an athlete this guy really was even though he batted 202 for the summer um he started seeing more breaking balls and stuff such after that 13 game inning streak and that's when his average really started to dip yeah uh you know and then you, you think about it you know and i'm gonna steal this i know you we both got it on our notes here but for terry terry francona a guy who's got world series rings and his coach hitters uh like david ortiz and manny ramirez and guys that have won jason baratek consistent hitters throughout you know, their entire baseball careers for him to look back on it and to say, you know, if we would have given him 1500 at bats, he'd have figured it out. He'd have been in, he'd have made an MLB roster. That's insane to me because you look at the other athletes that have, you know, even come close to the things that Michael was attempting, like Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders who played, you know, a contact sport and then came over and had relative success with Michael's work ethic. If he'd have made it to the majors, and had those kind of mentors, there's no telling what he would have been able to do. Right. I agree with you. And actually, um, that kind of leads me to my question for you, Nick. Um, Terry Francona explains his work ethic and his schedule and how he used to do things. Um, basically, waking up in the morning, hitting the cage, uh, would go to the field, practice with the team, hit the cage again, game, cage again. Um, so he was basically on a 16, 18-hour day training for baseball. Um, like you said, his work ethic was you know, unworldly. Um, so my question to you is with the baseball strike happening in 1994 and basically pushing him out of baseball without a baseball strike there, do you think he retires from baseball and goes back to basketball? 
No, I don't. I don't. I don't I think he stays. I think he stays in baseball. So it's like we talked about in previous episodes, the perfect storm, right? There's so, there's so much importance to Michael Jordan leaving. And I'll say it. If he doesn't leave for that 18 to 21 months where he's not playing basketball with the Chicago Bulls, if he doesn't do that, I don't think Steve Kerr and Dennis Rodman and Pippen and Kukoc and those guys get good enough for them to win another three championships without him being at the wheel. So I think it was important for him to leave and needed for him to leave. So like I said, it's just, it's weird how this whole thing played out almost like he was the logo, you know, the luckiest and greatest of all time. Right. And they talked about actually the development that those players had underneath Pippen in those year, year a uh, couple years, uh, just because Pippen was a different leader. Um, Matt, do you have something to say? I was just going to say, I think it, it, it actually was uh, interesting that it was kind of a break for everybody. Uh, you know, Pippen said that, you know, he just had such a great time that year because not everyone was just getting chewed out every day at practice. <laughs> and Michael kind of needed a break from basketball, I think. So I really think in the end, like Nick said, that's a really good point. I, I don't I I don't see this team winning three more championships if Mike doesn't take that eighteen month hiatus. Uh and I don't see Mike quitting baseball if they don't have that uh that strike. So it, it really almost was a twist of fate that, that they were able to win six championships through both of those things happening. So Yeah, and then it leads to him sending the, the famous facts uh, just, you know, they were debating how to say his press release um, to announce his unretirement. And um, they kept giving Michael speeches and he kept saying, no, 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 that's not right. And they said, you know what? Fine. You, you write your speech. You, you write it. And uh, all he said was, I'm back, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was so Jordan. That's so, so Jordan. Jordan, right? Uh, and it was absolutely awesome. Uh, and then the first year back, I believe is 95. And they run into uh, Horace Grant. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, Penny Hardaway, and the Orlando Magic. Um, And what I found very interesting about this series was the fact that there are a bunch of guards in the NBA at this point in time wearing Jordan Air 9s and 10s. So when Jordan retired for the first time, um, the NBA shipped out a bunch of uh, Jordan Air 9s and 10s to the better guards in the league um, and would switch the 23 for their jersey number and would switch the, the colors for their uh, their team color. Um, so when Nick Anderson strips Jordan in game one and everybody says, oh my gosh, Jordan is human and they basically lose game one to the Orlando Magic. The funniest part about that to me was Nick Anderson had Jordans on his feet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I thought, I thought that was hilarious. And then Nick Anderson goes out and says 45 is not 23, which – you know is probably the dumbest thing you could do for the history, like the future of the league, man. You, you went and pissed off the goat. Did you imagine being Horace Grant and hearing that your teammate just said that to Michael Jordan, whom he played with previously and just wanting to like shove him in a locker and leave him there. Like you just stay away from the press, man. You give him bulletin. He invented bulletin board material. You really don't want to do this. It's just nuts to me that if you Yeah, if there really is a continuing theme throughout this whole show, it's that when people have been able to get under Michael's skin, it's always gone against them. It's always come back to bite them. It's never worked out good for a single person. Right. And actually my next note is the fact that the magic brought the airness back. Um, he was yeah. not the same Michael going into that series. And I think that if he would have been treated differently, if they wouldn't have given him that bulletin board material and maybe just beat them 
uh, I don't know if he would have worked the way that he did in that offseason. Obviously, that offseason is when he's filming Space Jam, and he's inviting all of these NBA athletes, NBA legends, basically, to come to Warner Brothers and work out with him. Um, and they described his schedule when he was working on Space Jam. And again, 16, 18-hour days, man, just working out and working on his craft. Um, there's a reason he was the greatest of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. When you see that he brought in all those pros and he just pretty much used it as a summer to scout and get himself back into the swing of things, it really just shows what a brilliant guy he was. He he made use of every part of his abilities, you know what I mean, to become the best player he could. Yeah. Yeah, and for and it's so weird to look at because I was looking at that tent setup and all I could think about is, and not to get off track, but is that the blueprint for what The Rock does now? He brings his iron paradise to every film shoot ever. Was Michael the first guy to have that? And Rock looked at that and was like, yeah, that's going everywhere I'm going. Like to set that trend for athletic or athletes that are also movie stars. Well, I mean, I, I truly believe that he was revolutionary in a, lot of the, in a lot of the things that he did, not only on the court. Um, he was revolutionary in how he branded himself afterwards as well. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was one of the first to do that. Like you said, The Rock brings his iron paradise. Um, LeBron set up a court for Space Jam 2 as well. Um, so the precedent is there for athletes to have uh, training grounds while they're working on films in Hollywood. Um, and I want to say that there was one more too for a football movie that I can't think of off the top of my head for them to train during the off season as well. So um, I'm not sure if he was the one who started it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, one thing that I took away with this too, and actually I was kind of reading on uh, different articles about the last dance as well. So I do want to give credit. Uh, I did read this off of ESPN. I cannot remember the author's name currently, but um, he had a very, very good point that this all happened in the late nineties. If this was happening in the time of social media. So let's not even say that it's happening now necessarily, but let's just say that we had the capability of social media at that point in time in the late nineties. Um, there are a few things that wouldn't have just gone away. So Pippen sitting out with 1.8 seconds left. Can you yeah. imagine what would have happened if this, if that would have happened in the world of social media? That coach gets canned for sure. Like, coach gets canned. Like they don't just move on and play the next game in two days like they did. No. Yeah. Wait, the coach gets canned as in Phil Jackson? Is that what you're saying? Well, he's going to take all the heat in the world. They're, you know, they're quote unquote, you know, under, you know, they're under best player, you know, and that's your best player and you bench him. That doesn't go away. Think about when Draymond said that stuff to KD. That was a locker room issue, much like this would have been a locker room issue. And that bridge never got repaired because everybody in the media kept pouring gasoline on that ember. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing that would have happened. So yeah, no, I think that absolutely shows the difference in, in the time between the 90s and now when you think about how Phil Jackson handled that situation. I think there's a lot less. It goes back to what they said earlier in the series when um, I think it was Detroit that kept giving Michael problems and they were saying how they don't protect the star. It wasn't like that back then. You know what I mean? So I think it's kind of similar situation when Pippen's sort of playing this pre Madonna situation. Phil Jackson's a former player. You know, he knows what it's like. He knows that you need to devote yourself to the team. And Kukoc is the guy who's been getting the last second shots throughout, uh, you know, throughout the season. So, you know, it makes sense that they would go to him. Yeah, I don't know if it would have necessarily led to Phil's departure from Chicago or anything that drastic. Heat. He's, he would have definitely taken heat. Um, I don't know 
I, knowing Phil, I don't think he would have ever allowed the real story to go out. I think he would have taken the heat that he benched Pippen, and I don't think he would have allowed the real story that Pippen actually sat himself to get out. Um, and I think that that's actually to note um, one thing that makes Phil kind of an otherworldly coach is a lot of coaches would throw that player under the bus pretty much immediately, and I don't think that Phil would. Um, so the next thing that I want to talk about just in the world of social media, um, the facts. You know, Jordan r- announced that he was back through fax machine. So <laughs> if he had the capability of social media, do you think he would have just tweeted or put it on his Facebook? Or do you think he still would have done something um, maybe LeBron-esque with a decision or something along those lines? Good question. I feel like a tweet would have been the right thing. Like Michael would have done it at like two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday while he was playing around a golf. I'm back. And he just would have put his phone down and left it there and showed up to practice the next day. That was like this, because that's, Mike didn't like the fame. Like LeBron enjoys the spotlight and being able to be kind of like the front runner for the NBA. Michael just wanted to be in the gym. So I think that that's what it would have been. He just wanted to win. Yeah. Right. Um, And then the last uh, thing that I thought of that might be different in the world of social media today was the footage from those Space Jam workouts. Uh, He's like, yeah, today we got Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing. Like these were absolute NBA all-stars working out together. So do you think that if this happened in the world of social media that we would have seen these workouts um, as they were happening, not 20 years later in a documentary? Mm. I mean, I think you get them right away because you get them now. I mean, you can honestly go on YouTube and look at the lifetime pieces because they're the primary sponsor of the NBA and see guys, you know, Anthony Davis and Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul and Jay Cole and, you know, yada, yada are all shooting hoops together uh, at your local lifetime. So, yeah, I think you probably – I think you see it sooner. Uh, I, I still think it happens, and I do think we get it, but I, but I do think we get it sooner. Yeah. I agree with you. And then the last thing I want to note for uh, this moving forward, uh, Nick, I know you have a couple more notes that you want to talk about here, Um, but I just, I can't wait for the Pacers series with Reggie Miller. Um, Hearing how they ended uh, episode eight, I thought was awesome. Uh, Reggie Miller is one of my favorite players of all time, just with his mentality. And for him to go into that series and say, I'm going to be the guy who ends Michael Jordan's career. Yeah, uh, I thought that was just absolutely awesome uh, to have that confidence um, going into that series. So I can't wait for that series. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, but I do want to get to two things uh, before uh, we go ahead and end the episode today. And I'll get both of your guys' opinions on this as we go through. Uh, the first one is I'm thinking about it. I'm sitting there and I'm watching this last night and, you know, we see the I'm back thing and then it cuts to Steve Kerr and like Steve Kerr had, hadn't played them at this point and all I could imagine is the guys that were in, still left over from the old regime and the guys that had had some success from you know the quote-unquote non-Michael era uh, all this lovey-dovey Zen master Phil Jackson practice stuff finding out that Mike's coming back you have to imagine that that locker room was like motherfucker just knowing <laughs> that every single one of them was gonna get just reamed every single day from that point on like what would what would your thought process be if you were in that locker room like I you obviously have to be happy but you you gotta imagine that that thought is there right yeah I definitely think so uh it's a double-edged sword um I the the thing that I kind of go to is in my collegiate football career we brought back a coach from my freshman year 
um, that was known as kind of a hard ass. And we brought him back after I had graduated actually as the new head coach. Um, and I had discussed with um, some of the current players at that time what they were thinking moving forward with the new regime. And it was very similar to this, um, kind of came back, was a hard ass, um, push guys. Um, and they, they, their sentiments were, were kind of bummed that we basically have to work our tails off now. But on the other side of the coin, we know that we're going to be more successful. Um, yeah. So it kind of comes, you know, they come together. You're going to work harder and have basically torturous practices being yelled at by the greatest basketball player of all time who wants you to be his skill level. But you're going to walk away with three rings in three years. Yeah. Matt, how about you? What would your thought process be as a role player in that locker room? I would see it as here comes, you know, here comes the goat for one thing, obviously you got to be a little bit happy that, you know, even, even back then people were acknowledging him as if not the best of all time, certainly the best of that era. So you got to think that that guy's coming back into our locker room. So that just in itself is going to bring everybody's level up. And if you're a player, you want to win championships at the end of the day. At least that's my thought process. You want to win championships. So if Michael's coming back, he wants to win championships too. You know, rumor has it he's a jerk in the locker room. But at the end of the day, he's going to make everybody better. For me, it's it's pretty much all positive that Michael, a guy like Michael's coming back. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I totally agree. I would definitely be, I'd, I'd go like zero dark 30 and do nothing but like drink water and just sit in a dark room for a few days before Michael got back would be my approach to his return if, uh, if I had it. Uh, that intensity though translates into the most mistold story I think now in NBA history. We all hear about how Mike punched Steve Kerr in the face, but can we talk for a second about the size of the beanbag on Steve Kerr for punching Michael in the chest pretty much in the middle of a practice as like a role player or like a sixth man and then just getting walloped as a retaliation. Like that sheds a whole new light on it for me for Steve Kerr personally. I've always seen him as not really a, an, an edgy guy, but for him to have to see just a little bit of his competitive edge, like he wasn't going to back down from Michael. Like he wasn't going to let things just be that way. And for him to stand up to Mike like that, like that's insane for a guy of any era to stand up to somebody who's as iconic as Mike was at that point. Well, and I think, um, first of all, I was surprised that he did that too. I think Mike almost pushed him past his breaking point because Steve actually kind of described it. I'm a pretty quiet, docile guy, but big, but I'm, pretty dang competitive too and you push me that far I'm not going to just stand there and take it and um with Kerr throwing that first punch I think what happened was Michael actually developed an amazing respect for Steve Kerr he understood yeah. okay yeah he is the smallest player on this team but he can he can bring something to this team uh, he has some intensity inside of him as well so I think that that is one thing that um I took away from that is even though Steve Kurt threw the first punch and got physical first with Michael. Michael actually took away from that interaction uh, respect for Steve. Oh, for sure. Guaranteed. Respect for the roster. If, right. If Steve Kerr was kind of like the face of the new regime, you know what I mean? Like Pippen had to have known it was coming. Right. Pippen was probably at all, or Rodman was probably like egging it on, like, oh, they're going to get it. Like, oh, they're going to fight, fight, you know. But uh, Matt, 
Would you have had the cojones to stand up to, to uh, Matt? Would you have had the uh, cojones to stand up to MJ if you were in Steve Kerr's shoes? It's pretty hard to say yes, just because I mean anyone could sit here and say yes and you know go off spouting off, but like at the end of the day, dude, that's Michael Jordan. So it certainly was a human thing that Steve Kerr, like he wasn't thinking, oh, this is Michael Jordan when he punched him in the chest. He's like, this, this is a guy who's giving me a hard time right now. This is another man who's giving me, you know, a hard time. So I think that's really what it came down to. And just to piggyback off what you guys were saying earlier, I really do think it's a, it's kind of a good thing that Steve Kerr wasn't around before, you know, to see Michael Jordan play and then see him come back. You know, it, it was almost, it worked in his favor that he had never, played with him before when this stuff happened because it, it gave him the opportunity to kind of show his his stripes you know oh yeah for sure and you see it as a coach now the way he coaches the uh, coaches up the warriors you know is very similar to a lot i'm sure the atmosphere at practice is very similar i'm sure to what they saw at those bulls practices yeah i'm sure and that's why they went on to beat the bulls record you know what i mean 73 and 9 yep yeah Alrighty. Well, I believe that is everything that we have for you guys today. Um, I hope that you liked what you heard today. And if you did, please head over to our social, uh, Instagram and Facebook. That is MN Sports Talk. Uh, share on your page and turn on notifications to see everything we have going on. We do have posts going out daily uh, with different polls and things to get you guys involved as well. Uh, then join us again on Friday. Um, we are going to be bringing some new topics for you guys on Friday. Um, in the world of sports so uh, from me and uh, you know Matt thank you very much for joining us Um, Nick anything else to add can't wait to see you guys on Thursday Uh, oh Thursday I apologize yes Thursday yep Yep. and Matt you are welcome back anytime there is a UFC event man it was great to have you I appreciate you coming oh yeah absolutely thanks for having me again all righty have a great day guys see you I'm not going to be able to do that.